0: Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Kayla Drescher, magician extraordinaire. Kayla is a professional magician and ultimate storyteller. She is part scientist, part comedian, part bartender, part entrepreneur. She became fascinated with magic at the age of seven and found a magical mentor, literally, (laughs) who helped her train from the moment they met. And after spending more than 10 years practicing and performing endlessly, Kayla decided to give magic a break. So she went to college and focused on her love for science. And it was during her first year out of college that she had a quote unquote normal job. And she realized from the first day that she wanted to return to magic and pursue that professionally. And it was during a part-time job as a bartender that she actually created a niche in magic and blossomed. And what she focused on was strengthening bar magic. And it was from one of her magic bar tricks that Kayla started making headlines. She has since then won David Copperfield's search for the next great magician with the great David Copperfield himself saying that obviously Kayla is very, very good. When she isn't touring with Champions of Magic and performing at LA's Magic Castle, she performs for clients like IBM and CBS and Make-A-Wish Foundation and so many more. Now, I love magic. I love the illusions. And ultimately, I love the storytelling. And the greatest magicians are those that are so masterful in their storytelling. And Kayla Drescher is just that. You'll hear how she focuses on infusing personal stories in her magic and how much that helps engage with her audience members. Please enjoy this magical story of Kayla Drescher. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, I'm so happy. Thank you
0: for having me. Thank you for joining me. I have a very good feeling this episode will be magical. See what I did (laughs) there? So our listeners would have heard the intro to this episode, and they would know that you became a professional magician. My son turned seven this week, and I know that's around the time you were introduced to magic. And so could we begin with where you grew up and your first introduction to magic?
1: So I grew up in the middle of Connecticut in just a very small middle class town and nothing very exciting ever happened there. We had a gazebo and that was like the thing. (laughs) In fact, I received a pin from the mayor a couple of years ago for doing some shows there and the shape of the pin was the gazebo. So (laughs) that was fun. That's not the story we're telling, but It's fun to talk about. So yeah, I was seven and we don't remember how this happened, honestly. I know that we were driving down to visit my cousin and we stopped in this magic shop in Milford, Connecticut. I think it was called like Balloons and Magic. And we walked in and the guy behind the counter, as they do in magic shops, was demoing magic to sell. And he was demoing this cut and restored rope. So he would take a rope, cut it in half, put it back together. And at that age, I was already really obsessed with performing and making people laugh and making people be entertained. Like I really, when I was in preschool, they asked everybody what you wanted to be when you grew up, and I said I wanted to be Maria from The Sound of Music, not a doctor or a lawyer. My parents were very happy, and I also was very sciencey. So I was really obsessed with like experiments and playing with stuff, and I was always out in the backyard digging in the dirt and going, "What can I find?" Very logical, very experimenty. So magic really fit the performing side and the understanding how the world works side. And so it just clicked in my brain really, really well. And from there, I took lessons with the guy at the magic shop. We found a group of young magicians in Stanford, Connecticut, which is where I met my mentor who was in his seventies when I was seven. And he just sort of took me under his wing really quickly and gave me lots of opportunity. But that was the beginning and here we are now.
0: So can we talk about this magical mentor. How did that relationship and bond start?
1: So magic is a very much a mentorship art. So because it's all secret based, and it's really hard to describe magic and teach magic to people who aren't so immersed in it, because there's so much you have to understand everything. So having mentors is really valuable in order to be a good magician. And so I walked into this club with young magicians and the guy who was running it, his name was Bill Andrews he just immediately came over to me. And I'm not sure if it was because I was interesting or it was because I was a girl and the only girl that probably walked through those doors in many years, but he just really took to me and I really took to him. My parents really loved him. He was just this really knowledgeable magician who never did it professionally, but was just really, really good. And started teaching me, was going to the club meetings all the time and then was developing my own stuff in a sense, like just my own personality on stage and learning magic. And he really just offered to teach me lessons. He came to our house. We went to his house. He had a little stage in his basement. That was amazing. You could actually hold shows there. And so we would go and I would practice and it was just amazing. And I was really thankful to have him for most of my, I think he passed away when I was 19. So it was really amazing to have him to introduced me to the world of magic well before I was maybe ready or I would have never known about conventions and books and other magicians. And so, yeah, it was awesome.
0: That's great. And so for about 10 years, I know that you practiced and performed and used him as a mentor, but then you went to college and you thought, okay, I'm kind of done with magic. How did that transpire? And then what did you study in college then?
1: I get burnt out really easily with things if I don't take breaks. And I did not take a break from magic. It was a thing I did from 7 to 18 nonstop. I was at magic camp in the summer. I was performing all year round to pay for things I wanted, the movies with friends and stuff and doing kids' birthday parties. I was doing like 200 kids' birthday parties a year. It was outrageous. I wasn't charging a lot, but it was just like a constant thing where at least I had some money in the bank and it was amazing. And then I just got burnt out and was like, I don't know what I want to do. I thought I wanted to teach. I thought I wanted to teach music education, and then sci- I didn't even know. So I just went to college, and I put magic aside for it was basically three and a half years. I started doing it more in my last, my senior year of college, but I took a real big break from it, and I studied environmental science, and I thought that's kind of what I wanted to do, and a big passion of mine is green energy and how the world works. Again, bringing that back into the game. So that's what I started in college. And right out of college, I got a job in the science field. I worked part-time at the Museum of Science in Boston in the Animal Center. So like taking care of the animals, which was really cool. My best friend was a meerkat. It was awesome. (laughs) I loved it. And so it was really great. But after having a desk job and being in that position, it just was very, very clear to me that I needed to be on a stage.
0: So how long were you at that job for?
1: I worked at the Museum of Science on the weekends, but my full-time job, Monday to Friday, was this desk job in a science company. And it was the first day I was working there that I left and called my parents and said, I'm going to quit and I want to do magic. And my dad's answer, which was really smart, was, that's great, but how are you going to pay for healthcare? care? And he had a good point. I didn't think about it. I was 22. So I stayed at that job for three months. And during that time, I got a job as a bartender at a hotel and started working and doing magic at the bar. And I was able to quit the desk job to then focus on the bar magic job for two years. And that's really where I honed a lot of skill. So yeah, I wasn't there for very long.
0: Bartender magic. I love that. Most people know me for my bar work. Can you give me an example? I'm thinking of Tom Cruise and cocktails doing more bar tricks, but is it making things disappear or what was the magical component to bartending?
1: I used to do some flare juggling, which was fun, but then I dropped a bottle and my manager was like, "Mm -mm, no, never again. (laughs) So I was cut off, but it was fun for a minute. Bar magic, it's a little bit hard to explain, but basically imagine sitting at a bar and having a drink and then the person who made your drink stands up on a platform behind the bar. And starts doing stuff with bottles and straws and rubber bands and bottle caps and all this different stuff that's just around. And all of a sudden, you're like, what world have I entered? What was in my drink? What is happening? And so it was really fun, especially when there would be, because it was at a hotel, so there would be events. And so the events would break and come to the bar. And then I would serve everybody a drink and then pop up on a platform from behind the bar and do 20 minutes of a show. So it's really fun because you're dealing with drunk people, loud people, people who don't want to pay attention. People are like, shut up. It really thickens your skin as a performer. But I have a lot of really fun experience from behind the bar that then I teach now other magicians on how to be bar magicians. Bar magic is very few and far between, and it's very rare to have a woman do it. I don't know of another woman that has ever done bar magic and called it an expertise. So it's pretty cool to have that under my belt. But yeah, it's really fun because you're just sitting at a bar and instead of watching TV, or being on your computer or your phone, you're watching a show.
0: Can you for our listeners define the different types of magic? You mentioned that your first exposure was rope magic. When I think about magic, I think of top hat and a bunny with a wand or a body being separated into two. But I know there's different forms of it. Can you walk through the different types?
1: You can break down magic. Magic is very much the umbrella term and then there's lots of expertises you can have within magic. So sometimes it it will talk about where you're performing magic and the other kind is who you're performing magic for. So the where you're performing magic will be like close up. So that's a couple of people in a room or at a table, coin magic, cards, that's all close up stuff. Usually the way I describe it is if you took a picture what does it look like? So a picture of close-up magic is two hands and a prop. So that's sort of the very, very general way of describing close-up magic. Then there's parlor. It was coined in terms of magicians would come into your living room or your parlor and do magic. And that picture is usually from waist to head with some props, maybe a couple of audience volunteers to your side. And then you'll have stage magic. So that's usually the illusions, the cutting people in half, the making things disappear, all of that. So you have the illusions of magic. There's also mentalism, mind reading. There's so much. I'm even like, what else is there? But there's just so much you can do depending on what your expertise is. There's also creators, inventors of magic. So people who are really good at coming up with how the magic works. That's not something I'm good at. I'm much better at the performance side. So there's the inventors. And then you also have who are you performing for? So there's bar magic, corporate magic, colleges, cruise ships, strolling magic. So walking around at an event and doing magic for smaller groups of people. There's trade show magic where you create a show for a corporate client and you sell their product during a trade show. Instead of just a presentation, you're doing it via magic. Gosh, there's so many more, but that's the general idea.
0: What kind of magic do you focus on and how did that evolve?
1: So I started doing bar magic because that was just the easiest thing to do. And I made really good money on it because everybody wants to throw money at the magician who served you the drink. So it was a great deal. I think that's probably my biggest expertise. But then from there, I have an hour-long parlor show. I used to perform at colleges and corporate events. And that was really great because the parlor show is really universal. I don't do kids' magic. I don't enjoy it, but my show's family friendly. So that's nice. So, like, if kids are in the audience, it's totally fine. I have stuff I can do for them, but I don't like doing kids' parties. It's the worst <laughs> for me, anyway. My friends who do it are geniuses, but it's not for me. And then now I tour and I've been touring for almost three years now. And that's really cool because I'm doing close up magic in a. 2000 to 5000 seat theater, with (laughs) which sounds stupid. I'm in the audience and stuff, but I'm on a camera and a projector. So it's a really interesting element to the show because I had to learn how to do what I do, which is relate to the audience really well. That's sort of something I think I'm good at, or I strive to be good at that. And then do that through a camera and a lens and a screen. And so it's really tough, but that's sort of what I do is do close-up magic for big theaters now.
0: Can you talk about this tour group? It's called Champions of Magic, but can you share what that really is and more about that?
1: So Champions of Magic, it's a show. It started in the UK as a monthly show just by this guy who decided he wanted to start a show. And then it slowly became a tiny tour in the UK. So all the performers were from England. All the crew was from England, the producers from England. And then they decided to do a U.S. tour. And on the U.S. tour, I got picked up right at the end of it. And that was almost three years ago now. And so I did a couple shows, got brought on permanently. And then another U.S. guy got brought on. So there are five performers. We all have different expertises. So I'm the close-up magician. We have... Alex MacLear is the mind reader, the mentalist. We have Fernando Velasco, who's the escape artist. So he does all the dangerous escapes. It's amazing. And then Young and Stranger, are the illusion team. So they do all the big stuff. So you have a, like a wide range of things. We also have an aerialist. And so she does the silks. It's amazing. And then our crew is top-notch people. And it's just this team of about 14 of us. And we travel the world together. So we've toured the US, we've toured Canada, we've toured the UK of England and Scotland. It's just crazy. So I'm gone for about 30 weeks out of the year pre-pandemic. We're just all over the place. Sometimes we live on a bus. And for the most part, we all really like each other. So that's helpful. (laughs)
0: So I remember before this interview, I was doing some prep work and so much of your magic is online. And there was one amazing story or video with you performing for Penn and Teller where you bring Teller on and you had this really cool magic trick with him. And it was a lot of storytelling and it was no words, but a lot of emotions and actions that showed a love story and you had mentioned early on when you're younger and learning about magic, you love to perform. How much of performance do you embed in magic or is that magic by itself? But I'd love to hear your thoughts on storytelling in magic.
1: Usually a lot of magicians are very content to rely on the props being really amazing and not focus on the performance itself. So magic is really easy to be lazy and still be good. So I moved out to Los Angeles about five years ago. And when I did that, because LA is so entertainment based and people here are so good, I realized that I actually, I was really good for Connecticut, but not good for anywhere else. So I had to really up that game. And through that, i was still doing magic, but I left studying magic and studied comedy and improv and all this different stuff, which then that was able to be brought in to magic. So writing a sketch is a lot like writing a piece of magic where you have a beginning, middle, and end, and you've got to up the ante and you've got to raise the stakes and make it interesting while still doing a magic trick. And I tried to learn how to be entertaining without a prop. I remember I was taking an improv class and doing space work, so pretending there was an object in my hand, which for a lot of people is hard. But for me, because I always work with props, it was really easy. I would be relying on my space work to be funny. And the teacher went, all right, we're going to do the scene again. Kayla, you can't pick up anything. I was like, oh no, I don't know how to be (laughs) funny or interesting without something in my hands. And he really pushed me to understand, okay, so how do I be entertaining without relying on a thing? And that is something a lot of magicians don't do. And it's so valuable. So from there, I really learned, okay, we can bring in a lot of other elements to magic. And eventually, the heart routine was born. I also have these amazing, I call them mentors. I don't know if they would (laughs) define themselves as that. They're kind of like my magic parents. I met them like eight years ago now. And they're so good. And I eventually just went to them and said, I want to do Things that you do, how they were so amazing and they still help me. And I've learned so much from them about being unique and interesting and bringing in elements of my life into magic. And then that's sort of really what helped me become different and interesting, which is defining my personality on stage, defining like, why would I even show you this trick? I don't want to just fool you. That's stupid. I don't think magic is a game, it should be entertaining. So, magic is very much the special effect to the story you want to tell. So if I want to share with you a piece of information about myself, I'll go, okay, this is a really fun story to tell, or this is a really fun, silly thing about me that would be really fun for the audience to know. What magic can I put with that? And then boom, we put it with it. And I think that makes a much more entertaining piece of magic than anything else. So that heart routine I did on Fool Us was literally born out of having a bad relationship. And I just, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is a good story, but I'm going to say it, I'm going to say no words. Here we go. And boom, it was
0: born. Oh, it was awesome. I loved it. So, Thanks. we talked about the storytelling aspect, but when I think about magic, a lot of it is also science based. How much do you include of your kind of scientific mindset with the environmental science component? But if you can talk more about the science link to magic also.
1: On a very foundational way, I used to do a lot of routines that involved talking about science. I have one rubber band routine where I talk, I go on a fractals rant. So, I just talk about how fractal, I'm just like, this is done via fractals. And you insert an equation into a Turing machine, it repeats over and over, but you have a coalition of friction. And I just like talk and people go, oh, wait, hold on, time out. She has words. She has words to say. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Like what is she saying? But then it's fun because then I recognize, oh, what I'm saying is stupid. Let me actually explain this. And then it goes to something funny. And every once in a while, I get somebody in the audience that is like, yeah, fractals. So that's really (laughs) fun. And so I bring that in just in terms of like, these are things I like talking about, so I can talk about them a little bit. But behind the scenes, I have a couple of magic notebooks, just writing down ideas. And a lot of the ideas are designed with like, I've just got equations and drawings and it looks like a science lab notebook. I also did a lot of studying for bar magic, talking about what I would consider an expertise is I have notebooks studying how to get more tips. So I lecture to other magicians on here is a scientific experiment I ran for two years on how to gain the most amount of tips out of your bar magic experience. So it's very much a behind the scenes thing too. So it's fun. Like I said before, I'm not really good at how magic works. So I know that science is really involved in that. So there's a lot of light distribution. There's a lot of contrast there's a lot of a lot of people say mirrors mirrors aren't very common in terms of the magic method they used to be but there's way better technology now but there's a lot of weight distribution in terms of making things levitate and a lot of the method behind making something levitate will make an object look like it's on a string and you don't want that so how do I make sure we can disprove there's no string here because everybody goes string magnets Okay, how do we get rid of all of that? So you're working a lot of that. There's also a ton of psychology. And that is not something I studied, but through magic, you have to understand how people think.
0: When I think about science, I think about reality. So what do I feel or what do I think is reality? So whether it's what I should feel or what I should see, do you script out and say, okay, this is what people think and let's try to disprove that or make that fake? Or how do you script a new magic bit?
1: Well, magic and science have a symbiotic relationship that also works against each other. So from the audience's perspective, magic defies science. So we understand gravity and then something floats. So that's not possible in our logical world. But also when you watch a movie, like if you watch Captain Marvel, she has proton blasts out of her fists and can fly. And that defies everything we understand about logic. So that's really value. It's like, okay, magic. From the audience's perspective, if we go, what is normal? What is logical? And how do we make that not real? How do we make everybody suspend their disbelief and go, oh my goodness, this is happening. And that's very much from the creator side of stuff. When I come up with something new, there's kind of two ways you can do it. In a sense, it's either top down or bottom up, and you could either start with the trick and put the script and entertainment to it, or you could start with the script and entertainment and find a trick that works. So, for the heart routine on Fula, it's just because that's we've referenced it, but it's also up on YouTube. It's really easy to watch. Is that started with the idea? And I heard a piece of music, and it just clicked. It was like, oh, this will be perfect and that trick doing a tour and restore paper but having it happen in the audience's hand at the same time has not been done before or at least i've asked a lot of people it has not been done before so i had to come up with that so i used what would have been a normal method for tearing a piece of paper and restoring it however doing it in their hand became the difficult part And what was great is that the story itself, because I had already understood the story, I just went, oh, that's how this is done. So it was really easy to go, okay, I have all of the elements that I want to share. Then here's the trick to put with it. Other times you might go, okay, I really love this trick. How do I make this entertaining? And that sometimes is difficult. I have a card trick that I love doing. And I was like, how do I make this interesting? And it's just a lot of working through what's the point, answering the question, why is this happening? Why am I showing this to you? Why can magic happen right now? Why Can I do this skill? So you can either do one or the other.
0: I love that. And I love how much storytelling and emotion that you embed in your magic. So you won David Copperfield's search for the next great magician. What was that experience like?
1: I mean, I don't even know. It's so (laughs) amazing. I was working at this bar magician for about a year and I had developed this trick with a bottle cap or with bottle caps. I had taken them. I just sort of noticed bottle caps have a really interesting property to them that helps magic because of the ridges on the outside. I was like, Oh wow, this is really easy to do magic with. And I took bottle caps home. And I don't think I slept for about, 40 hours. I was just up all night. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, the sun's up. Great breakfast. Back to this trick. And it's not revolutionary or anything. It's not super different from other magic that's happened. But there are some elements to it that make it very, very different. And I just spent all this time doing it. And I started performing it at the bar. And it was going great. And a friend of mine, another magician, was like, I'm going to submit to this contest. You should do it. So I did. And all of a sudden, I get a call saying, okay, you're going to come on. And the contest was submit an original magic trick. So it had to be something you came up with. And I guess they liked it enough to bring me on. So I was on the Today Show with David Copperfield, and Copperfield was the judge. And there were three of us, and everyone was amazing. And we just performed this trick that we had come up with. I won the contest. So the title was Next Great Magician, which I was not deserving of that at all, but it was amazing. And then I brought a friend, we flew out to Vegas, we saw a Copperfield show, we toured his magic museum, which is about four hours of just sifting through magic history. I held a prop that I didn't even know was possible. I like cried a little. I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) It was the secret of the original version of a levitation trick. And I was just like, "Oh, oh my God. It was great. And that was really a good catalyst for me to go, oh, okay, I'm actually not bad at magic. I could do this. Here we go. And it just made me work even harder after that. But it's a great marketing tool. (laughs) So I'll take it.
0: That's incredible. When you have David Copperfield saying, obviously, very, very, very good. That's a pretty nice compliment to have in your pocket. But you had mentioned that you don't feel like that is a deserving compliment. Why do you not feel that you're very good?
1: So, most days I think because I was almost 23 at the time and I had never done a lot of TV and I had come up with this one thing, and all of a sudden, David Copperfield, who is the great magician, says she's the next great magician, and I just put all for a while and I still kind of feel it, is it feels very I'm like, oh, I'm not, though. I'm not. Let's just make sure everyone understands that I'm not going to be Copperfield. And I realized it was a marketing tool, it was a ploy to get people to watch. So I know it's not actually David going, no, 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 she's going to be my level soon. But it just feels weird to have that. Now it's a little bit better where I go, okay, like I did a thing. It wasn't great. I'm happy to get the marketing, the tool. This is great. The title, that's pretty amazing. But Sometimes I don't feel like I'm good at magic. I think that's normal though. I think it's very normal for people to question whether or not they're good at the thing they're doing. But also if there's ever a day where I genuinely think I'm really good, I think that's the day I have to quit because that's the day I realize I don't have to work anymore. So I know that I'm good at things. I know that I can share knowledge that I have because it's unique and interesting. I know I have good perspectives on stuff and I know that I'm good enough to charge money. But there are also days where I'm like, oh, I'm so bad. I have to work so hard to be good. And that's actually I would rather live in that mindset than live in the mindset of I'm amazing and stop working at being good.
0: There's one interview I did with this extraordinary woman, Amber Freed, and she was an equity research analyst before she started a nonprofit focused on her son's illness. As she was working in like the stock world and investments world, she said, the stock market is the most humbling machine and tool ever because every day you're told you're stupid. <laughs> and there's so many people applying to figure this puzzle out. And she goes, it's really humbling. And magic seems similar where You have this really fast feedback loop where you try it and if it doesn't work, you know right away. How many times have you failed at birthday parties or in front of people or on a film and you're like, holy crap, what is the failure and feedback loop like for you?
1: It's constant. I mean, I think there's something in every single show that you fail at and have to fix and Again, I think that's part of the idea of like, I really so desperately want to do a good show. And if I don't understand that there's something wrong with every show, then there's something wrong with my mindset of how I approach magic. So I bought an Apple Watch for the purpose of audio recording every show I do so that I can listen back to it because a lot of what I do is scripted, but also a lot of what I do is very improvised in the moment, depending on what somebody does. So I leave a lot of space in a routine to respond to the audience. And through that, I think for the most part, I'm good at the quick response. But also there are times where I do it and it died. It was not funny or maybe it was a little bit harsh or something and I have to go, ooh, okay, how do I get out of this one? And I can listen back to that audio and go, okay, was it actually not funny? Okay, yes, it was. What did I say and how do I learn from this? And in magic, we have a term we call the pros. And the pros are the guys and women, but I say guys a lot, are the people that are willing to admit That they did a really good show, but this one thing messed up or this one really hard thing happened and how do I fix it? Or a prop failed or whatever it is. And those are the pros. Those are the people that you want to really work with because those are the ones that continue to get better. They don't ever stop. And that's the mindset I always want to have is how do I make this better? So I'm constantly audio recording and listening back to the audio the next day. What's great about the tour is that I get to tour with literally my family in a sense. And especially one of the guys, the mind reader, he and I, after the show, while we're waiting to go do the final bows and do the final illusion, we just sit and talk about what went well and what didn't. And it's good to have that feedback from each other too. So you're constantly failing, especially when a trick really doesn't work and you can't get out of it. You're like, all right, that failed. Why did it fail? How do I need to fix this? I have to fix this prop. I need to fix this moment. It's just a constant fixing of stuff. So, magic is literally just, I think you fail more than you succeed. The audience might not see it, but you definitely do.
0: I love that. You had mentioned improv, but I forgot to mention and thank Holly Mandel, who introduced us. And you had mentioned improv is helpful to your routine and your storytelling. Are there other skills or attributes that you think make a good magician?
1: First of all, I love Holly. I want to be her when I grow up.
0: Me too. She's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Love her.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Holly. I think the best thing for me that makes a magician good is being a human being first. I really, and audiences are really picking it up on, especially now because we're so used to watching things on a screen or we want an actual human interaction that's valuable. If you're a magician and you're doing stock lines, so lines that every magician has ever done. So a lot of that is like, can I have your hand? No, the clean one. If you're not bringing in your personality and who you are and you're not grounded, and that's really what improv helps me do is ground myself in this moment and listen to the audience, be present, be a human being having a conversation. I think that's what makes a good magician. I hate watching magic that is just, it's like you're performing for a wall. you don't care about your audience at all, and that's so many magicians. But when there's a magician that actually cares and listens and wants to do a good show for this audience, not any audience, this audience, and they want to share who they are as a person, that's what makes good magic. And I think a lot of audiences are starting to really catch on to that. A lot of audiences are still entertained by the props. That's great. but a lot of audiences especially colleges, are really starting to click in. College students are going, oh, this is boring. It's easy for them to just tune out. But if you click into them, if you relate to them, if you're interesting, then they're like, yeah, this is great. So that's what I think makes a good magician is someone who understands how to be a human being first.
0: Love that. Do you have a goal for your magical career? Do you think about career growth? I think you have to.
1: I'm not really a good... Planner. I don't have a five year plan. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing the rest of the day. I'm really good at just sort of going, What do I want to do right now? And then do that thing. And if I don't want to do this other thing I'm supposed to do, I'm not going to do that. I have to live in the moment of going, What is going to entertain me at this moment? And I do have a really specific goal, which is I want a show in one place. So eventually, I want a family would be really lovely to have one day. And A home base where I'm traveling now the majority of the year, I'd rather have it be the opposite in like another five years or so. And I want to have a show in one place where people can come to me and I can control the environment, but then I can perform a couple nights a week and it'd be fun. So I think that's the eventual goal is to have a show in one place. So that would be the ultimate.
0: Awesome. You had mentioned Bill, you had mentioned your magic parents Are there more mentors or sponsors along the way that has helped you learn and hone in your craft?
1: Yeah, I think the magic community overall is very supportive of each other. I'm really lucky to have amazing women in the community because like you said, there aren't a lot. We estimate there's like 7% of magicians are women, but about 3% of them are professionals. So it's a small number and I'm really lucky to Have women that have come before me and paved the way and now help when I'm at most discouraged about being a gender minority in magic for them to go, no, 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 okay, keep going. This is what you need to do. So I'm really thankful for that. In LA, we have the Magic Castle. So there's just an inherent group of magicians that are willing to give you feedback and watch your act and listen. And I've met some really, really great magicians that have helped hone things. Or even if they just give you one tweak of the act, you're like, oh, that made it so much better. I failed at that until that person came in. I failed at being able to give a solution to this moment until that person came in and gave me this one thing to make this work. And that's very common in magic is it could just be literally you change one word and it's a totally different game. Or you change one, you put it in your left hand instead of your right and it's a totally different routine. So yeah, I think there are just tons of people that have watched what I do and given feedback, Holly being one of those people, to having directors and people outside of magic to help. So it's just a really great community overall, of people just willing to, everybody wants to make magic better.
0: I love that. It reminds me of Scott Adams, who's the author for the Dilbert cartoon. And one interview, he said that he only has four or five panels to make an impact and a storyline. And he says, every word is so impactful. So do you say fly or do you say soar? And he made me think every word really matters. And that's interesting that it's similar in magic too. One of the questions I ask everyone is, who or what inspires you?
1: I'm really obsessed with Celine Dion. And (laughs) it's such an out of left field answer, but it's true. She's a background on my phone. I have a picture of her in our (laughs) living room. It's an obsession. However... I have good reason to be obsessed with her because she's perfect. But also, so I think a couple elements of Celine really inspire me is that one, I love how she's managed her career. She used to, and I sort of had this same trajectory of when she was a kid, she had such a meteoric rise that she had a terrible ego that got chipped down to the point where now she's egoless. She knows she's good. She demands what she needs in order to do a good show, but she also knows I should never think I'm better than anybody else. And I sort of had that too as a kid. I had a meteoric rise, did a lot of amazing things and thought I was the best and then realized that's not accurate at all and got knocked down a lot. And so now I'm really, I'm very thankful for that because I didn't have that as an adult. It didn't ruin my reputation as an adult performer. So now we're like, okay, great. So I can keep that in check if I ever feel like I'm getting a little too much of a big head. So I always remember Celine talking about that in an interview. Obviously, her work ethic is outrageous, so I'm really obsessed with that. But I've seen her show a good amount of times, and every show she does is so well thought out in terms of the lighting, the choreography, the way she holds the microphone is that every tiny detail is important. And she's so present in every show. I saw her Vegas show right before it closed, And she does like a 15-minute stand-up comedy set. And was it funny? It wasn't at all. But it was awesome because she's endearing. She's interesting and she's real. And you're like, ah, okay, I want to be that. She's not apologizing for who she is. And she's nuts. And she's not apologizing for it ever. So I'm really obsessed with her. And also she's perfect.
0: (laughs) That may be one of my favorite profile answers. (laughs) Thanks. So I usually ask people, and I think I'm going to, change this question because it's evolved just with the amount of interviews I've done. The question used to be, can you describe one of your most impactful or memorable failures? And a friend of mine, Naomi, who is a listener to the show, and thank you, Naomi, for listening. She said, you know, when I listen to these profiles, they're failure stories, kind of, but they're really growth stories. And so I'm going to change my general question to be, can you name or Can you share the story of one of your biggest growth moments, whether it's through failure or through struggle, but if you have one or two moments of growth that are really quite memorable for you?
1: After I graduated college, I was living in Boston, and I realized that I wasn't getting anything more out of Boston and the magic community. I was really stagnant, and I wanted to move somewhere that would kind of change that. And I decided to move to Vegas. It felt like the right answer. It wasn't. But at the moment, it was like, okay, I need to do this. And I moved to Vegas, and I was next to starving. It's like I wasn't working. I didn't know how to get work. It's a really hard town to survive in as an entertainer. I didn't enjoy living there at all. And there were moments where I remember really specifically there was a show I got a call for. It was a corporate company that was renting out the entire first floor of the Aria Hotel, so you understand how much money they have is they rented out everything on the first floor except the escalators like it's just of theirs and so i get a call to do a 45 minute show for this corporate company party and it's a great and at the time i think my fee for that was like 1500 for 45 minutes so i said great my normal business tactic get them to be your friend so that they get on your side and they're happy to pay you and they'll hire you again. This is awesome. So do all that. I mentioned the fee and the woman on the phone said, oh, that's pretty high. We've been calling a lot of magicians in Vegas and we have a couple who are willing to do it for like 75 or a hundred dollars, which is actually, it's shocking, but That's really common in magic is there's a lot of undercutting, especially in a city like Vegas, where there's so many magicians that there's just a constant undercut and people are willing to do magic for nothing because they have to, because that's how you make any money is that you just undercut, you get the job and you work more than anybody else. It's very frustrating and ruins the market. And I heard that. And for me, I just went, okay, no problem. Again, I'm failing in Vegas. I am not doing well. I was happy to have some savings to fall back on, but I'm not taking income. I just said, okay, fine. How's 350? And I dropped my price so much and she took it and I did the show and it was not fun. It was not a good show because I was upset with myself. And it was the first and only time I undercutted my value. And so for that company, they said, well, this 45 minute show that this person has been working on for years is only worth $350. And I know it's not, but in that moment, I just went, I have to do this. And I did it and it was awful. And I can't even imagine how that hit the rest of the market because that company now thinks that's what magic is worth. And then I thought that's what I was worth. And after that, I realized, no, I'm worth so much more. And I put in so much effort. and I never undercut my price again. And if someone can't afford the price, I'll offer a small discount, but it's still worth my value. And if someone can't afford it, it's totally fine. I'll direct you to magicians that can work for that price. But I refuse to undercut my value anymore. That's my growth story is like, that was a really prevalent time in my career and my choice of where I went, okay, I need to make better choices and put a value on myself where other
0: people respect that. Love, love, love that. How has magic changed in COVID-19 era?
1: Well, it's non-existent, isn't it? It's just A lot of magicians are doing Zoom shows. I can't, I don't get it. I've watched over a hundred hours of magic live streams now to just try to understand this and study. And I haven't seen anybody do a good job. That doesn't mean they're not doing it. It doesn't mean there isn't somebody out there not doing it. I just can't like it. I'm not entertained. It's hard. There are a couple of shows I think are doing a really good job and they're weekly and they're doing well and there's a couple different magicians on the show. So there's variety and it's good. But overall, it's tough. And I know how much people are charging for doing Zoom shows and it's not even half of what you would charge for a live show, which is understandable but Zoom shows aren't good, <laughs> and that means that that client is going to see your value as only what they can see on Zoom. So I'm refusing to do them because I don't want to undervalue myself and make myself look worse than I am because I'm not going to do a good Zoom show. I'm just not. It's hard. However, I'm doing a lot of teaching. So There's a lot of people who want to learn magic right now because they're not doing anything. So there's a lot of people that I teach one-on-one lessons to, we've got a kid's summer camp that's running. So they're like week long summer camps for eight to 10 year olds. We've got adult classes. So there's a lot that I'm doing to try to keep magic going and income and do stuff. But right now it's really hard. And I can't even imagine when we start performing live again, nobody's going to want to pick a card. They're not going to want to touch a prop that other people touched. And that's something that I've already started thinking about and thinking about how do I retool everything I do? Because it's so interactive that everything I do has to change for the foreseeable future. So it's tough because magic is like, we talk a lot about, oh, the best magic is when it happens in the audience's hands. And that's not going to happen, is it? So it's going to be very presentational for a while, which is the type of magic I don't enjoy, but it's going to have to happen for However, long until people feel more comfortable. And eventually it'll go back to, I think, what magic is good at, which is the interaction. And that's just gonna be a while from now. But for now, it's just understanding like, all right, what am I doing today? And how do I make today and this week work as a magician? But it's tough because that's, you work so hard to have a career <laughs> and then it all just comes crashing down and luckily everybody's in the same boat or if i keep saying that and i correct myself because somebody said no we're not all in the same boat we're in the same storm and in different boats and i keep having to remember that but we're all in the same storm and right now i'm personally in a boat that just really wants to make people laugh but is slowly sinking so it's <laughs> fine that's where we are so we're just trying to figure it out i don't have really any answers but magic is definitely making a huge shift after we start opening things up. But I imagine theater will be the last thing to come
0: back. I am confident that whenever magic kind of reopens in person, that you will somehow make a virus approach to it in terms of making like a virus disappear from the hands of the nose or something like that.
1: Yeah, it'll be fun. I mean, there'll be a lot of things to talk about and we can share through magic because everybody can relate to being in this pandemic, which is really, really valuable for entertainers, because you can all go, all right, you all get this. I want to share my experience, which is really good. But yeah, it's going to be a bit and I look forward to getting back on stage. I miss it so much. But I'm just trying to do what is fun getting hobbies. I haven't had a hobby in a while. So developing those, which is really great. And just being at home, I don't get to be home very often and with my family. And it's nice to be here. So yeah, make it work. That's
0: awesome. Where can people find out more about Kayla Drescher?
1: So my website is magicinheels.com, which is funny because I hate wearing heels. So yep, you can go to that website. That's about it. And all the social medias there are magic in heels. You can find them
0: there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is great.